We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. Yeah, I had a jacket on. I took it off because a little ostentatious. Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. We can do the intro as a separate clip. And with the deep voice and the deep questions, Dee Ferguson. I'm a Cowboys fan. My name's Corey. And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. They were cool, D. Hashing It Out is sponsored by DraftKings. Have you heard about DraftKings Marketplace? It's the place to snag the latest digital collectibles across sports, entertainment, and culture. DraftKings has released their first ever NFT fantasy game, Rainmakers Football. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFLPA. Now you can collect the hottest player card NFTs while playing free for millions in prizes. Right now, everyone can get their first full roster starter pack for free. And playing is simple. Buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Craft lineups of athletes from your NFT collection and earn points for touchdowns, receptions, and more just like daily fantasy football. Build your NFT franchise and enter free rain Makers football contest all season long to compete for millions in prizes. Download the DraftKings Daily Fantasy app now and sign up with promo code Bitcoin. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first full roster starter pack for free. Plus, play for millions in prizes all football season and build the ultimate NFT fantasy franchise with Rainmakers football. That's promo code Bitcoin. Build, play, win only at DraftKings. Contest entries dependent on type and number of NFTs held. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. If you missed part one of the Consensus Layer with Mo Jalazai, go back and take a listen. In part two of the Consensus Layer, we talked to Ethereum co-founder Vitalik Buterin. That was a great interview with Vitalik that we had two weeks ago. I really liked how he talked a lot about the history of Consensus and where they are now and what they plan to do in terms of achieving single slot finality uh, and to kind of include the 280 something thousand validators that are on ethereum uh, and try to aggregate all of their signatures together mm-hmm. yeah i think it's interesting that like he did, he did a really good job of explaining how advances in cryptography and math really uh, allow us to make drastic changes in the way blockchain networks work uh, he did a really good job explaining kind of like a, a part of that math like going through bls signatures and then how that allowed us how allowed them to understand that they could do something they didn't think they could do beforehand and then mm-hmm. and then relaying the like ridiculous engineering feat of trying to make that a reality in a distributed ecosystem is something I think people uh, underappreciate, right? So like you can come up with a really cool way to do something and then make an improvement and an upgrade to a a blockchain protocol. But the engineering aspect and community aspect of getting a bunch of other people who have very different opinions and motivations Mm -hmm. and levels of attention to do this as well. And like 
reasonably synchronously is is impressive and that's something that as we move towards a much more distributed blockchain networks where like it's reasonably fair and there's less and less levels of centralization that becomes harder and i think that's kind of an interesting thing to understand it's not only like the cool innovations we can come up with by like improving math and pushing research but also the drastic engineering efforts of implementing these things i loved it i i liked it because i feel like for the first time i get why people rally around vitalik i didn't in the past in fact corey remembers on the old mm -hmm. the old bitcoin podcast, yeah, he got a little chip on that shoulder I used to talk a lot of shit about vitalik because of you know he beat me at street fighter 2 once mm -hmm. but um no i i was always questioning his ability to to, to navigate the political spectrum of crypto because there is one and to deny that is stupid but i see why he can navigate it so well it's just because he's very clear in his thoughts and he has a lot of clarity with the steps that need to happen right and anybody can rally around that right i know that has less to do with the tech i know we're supposed to be talking tech uh but you can talk I, person. yeah he he has such clarity in the steps and it's easy to rally around that. Uh, you know, I, I've both been the person that rallied around that and the person who's responsible for getting people to rally around that. And the clear, the more clarity you have and the specificity of what we need to do to get from A to B, maybe it's A.1.2, maybe it's B.1.2. Like if you can get some clarity in those steps then people, anybody can rally around that. Right. And that's what I really, enjoyed listening to him talk was just how clear he understands the way things need to go and he doesn't really care who doesn't like he's like look this is the way things need to go in my opinion and if you have a more clear opinion of the way things need to go drop it drop that fire if you got it but this is what i think and i think he uh, he's very very good at uh articulating all that so that's what i got based from on me. that do you think like these networks need a leader like a human leader yes to follow like the, so like the the anonymity of satoshi and bitcoin you think is a detriment to the to the uh innovation of bitcoin it's it's, it's potential to move forward uh i don't think it's a detriment but one of the things that i've tried to be calibrated to as i get more mature just in things in general is knowing when things change knowing when something is good and then when it turns bad because that can happen, right? I mean, hell, Corey, you, you were in chemistry, right? Like you can have certain amounts of things and you make a really good thing. You put a little too much in, you got an explosion. I don't know. I think that happens in, in Nailed it. That happens in chemistry, <laughs> right? Right. Nailed and it. so yeah. I think that like Satoshi being anonymous in the beginning was a great thing for crypto because if a government tried to do what Satoshi had done, squashed, right? Somebody's getting nuked. So somebody, somebody's getting a bomb dropped on them. But in being anonymous and it being nothing sparked crypto, but as crypto grows and becomes more synonymous, becomes more, um, not synonymous, maybe it is synonymous. Uh, everybody's doing it. Um, ubiquitous? Synonymous. Ubiquitous. That's the word I'm looking for, not synonymous. Uh, <laughs> more ubiquitous. Um, it's going to need human leaders, obviously. Like, even in this conversation where he's talking about, you know, 
we have a specific set of nodes that we know what they're doing. And he mentioned the word enterprise and he meant you need humans for those things. You need humans to coordinate that, was, that kind of stuff. He spoke about those things in a negative in a negative manner when he said those when he said those words. He was mentioning he early oh. PBFT protocols and their requirement for enterprise like so uh, services because you can only have so many validators and those validators have a lot of uh, resource constraints. He's so even killed. I thought I didn't know it was negative. So I'm glad you caught that. I, you would have liked to move away from that. Uh, that was no. kind of the whole the whole point of that 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 part of the conversation. It just but yes, you need people to and my I think you need people. You need to lead a group within the community. The question is whether or not you need one to lead the entire community. And since I don't like and maybe Vitalik represents the Ethereum part of the broader community and that goes back to the part of the conversation was like is there is there one to rule them all or like will we coalesce around one blockchain network or one base layer one or where we'll have like multiple competing ones uh over the course of the time period kind of that's i'm curious to see how that plays out well i think it's pointing all signs are pointing to if you don't use or bridge to ethereum then financially you have problems in terms of bootstrapping enough activity for your for your blockchain maybe yeah. um what else did i get from that interview i got that um from a hashtag not investment advice bitcoin ethereum they're pretty solid to just have yeah that was an um, interesting point that he made about like this isn't this isn't talked about enough. The, the one of the detriments of proof of work chains is that you can only really have one of them per category of proof of work because bootstrapping a new chain is easy to kill from the from the main chain, right? So if I wanted to make a new proof of work chain that's similar to Bitcoin, Bitcoin didn't like it. The miners just switch over, kill the chain, and then go back to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that I think has is is true. Like I don't think you can bootstrap and create new networks that are similar to the current proof of work networks in each of the categories categories being the different flavor of proof of work what external resource goes into uh validation so for that end for that means like we're going to have proof of work chains mm -hmm. but the probably the ones that already exist and they're not going to be any new ones especially because it's way easier to bootstrap proof of stake not only because of that issue of if someone doesn't like you they'll kill you quickly when you're small but it's just a lot easier because uh you don't need to like the, the it difficulty of setting up a, a staking validator is way more simply than a mining thing proof of work won't go extinct but it's gonna be damn close to being a zoo, <laughs> zoo. <laughs> it's gonna be in a, it's gonna be in a zoo i think bitcoin will remain, remain relevant zoos make a lot of money so <laughs> In the last 10 years, more than $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management, scams, and hackers. Our new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. Check out Zengo and you'll find an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC which until now had only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. And don't forget that Zengo has legendary in-app 24-7 live support 
with real humans. Zengo is a secure Web3 wallet, and your crypto, NFTs, and assets are fully recoverable using a biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com slash tbppod and use the code tbppod to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's zengo.com slash tbppod. That's code tbppod for $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. Today's interview, we have the one and only Vitalik Buterin talking to us about some consensus topics. Welcome to the show, Vitalik. No, thank you uh, so much. It's uh, good to be here. So uh, the previous episode discussed kind of the history of consensus and also discussed some of the scalability trade-offs and um, when you design or choose different flavors, what type of design choices you're making or um, what properties you end up getting based on the flavor of consensus you get. Can you want to talk about today a little bit around where consensus is going? And since this episode is happening shortly after the merge, congratulations, by the way, um, I think that's a quality time to talk about your your thoughts on distributed consensus and the direction it's heading in the future. Sure. Uh, so at this point, uh, I think uh, one of the big shifts that's happened in the uh, crypto space just on this, a very macro scale over the last five years is uh, there has been this large, uh, I think, shift in legitimacy from proof of work uh, toward proof of stake, right? Uh, so about five years ago, mo a lot of the new chains that were being created were still being created in this uh, proof of work paradigm. And uh, lately, um, you know, obviously, yeah, in the last month, Ethereum has uh, finished the uh, last step of its move from proof of work to proof of stake. But then even the uh, other new chains, pretty much anything that has uh, come out in the last two or three years, with very few exceptions, has been a uh, proof of stake chain from the start, right? And the uh, academic uh, innovation in consensus mechanisms, I think, has also shifted a lot in that direction, right? So, uh, you know, back in 2013, there was a lot of excitement about uh, you know the like the proof of work version of uh, Ghost and uh, you know proofs of proof of work and uh, puzzle towers and just all of these out of proof of work flavored ideas. But now I think people are squarely in this uh, proof of stake camp, which is uh, interesting and I think uh, convenient from an academic perspective because uh, proof of stake really uh, kind of ties in together well with uh, what uh, people sometimes call traditional consensus theory, right? So like this long line of research that starts from uh you know leslie lamport's byzantine generals paper it's work lynch stockmeyer pbft and like that whole line of things that uh, has uh, existed for more than 30 years and was uh, originally adapted for this like m of n what we would normally call a yeah, permission chain context where you know that there is a specific number of nodes that uh uh, are going to be participating in the chain and you know the number of them you know who they are ahead of time and uh, you're just uh, trying to maintain consensus between those right so less of a yeah kind of fully permissionless and um, you know anyone and including anonymous people can show up context and uh, more of this uh, like you know, hey it's just like 15 um you know, enterprises or nodes controlled by the same enterprise uh, sort of context. And uh, proof of stake is basically taking those models and transferring them into this uh, 
crypto economic context that tries to be more like open and uh, permissionless and where um, anyone can participate, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of roughly where we're at. And uh, within the uh, proof of stake family, um, there is uh, obviously a lot of uh, different uh, subfamilies and a lot of uh, different philosophies, right? Uh, so the very early proof of stakes, if you look at uh, NXT, Peercoin, um, you know, things uh, of uh, that type that uh, were created in the more 2013 to 15 era, a lot of them are very proof of work inspired, right? They're chain based. Their developers often, um, you know, had no idea who, um, you know, Dwork, Lynch, and Stockmire even are. Um, they yeah, basically just gave themselves and answered the question of, uh, you know, how do we take proof of work? Uh, because proof of work is the only consensus they know and uh, move it away from the context of, uh, uh, proving that you have the right to participate by uh, running your computer and so to solve math problems 24-7 and into the context of uh, prove you have the right to participate by showing that you have coins and using in protocol randomness to randomly choose some coin holder to make a block every time. Um, so that style of consensus is uh, fascinating because it has a lot of advantages, especially for this very massively multi-participant uh, context, right? Like when you have a million people participating, the uh, traditional proof of stakes, they tend to break down easily uh, because it's like, okay, the algorithm requires you to get a message from every node and uh, you know have a message from every node broadcasted to every other node during every round of the consensus and for that to happen twice, right? Uh, but uh, when you have a, a million nodes, that's just like totally and uh, completely unviable and... Uh, it even often breaks down past about a few hundred nodes. Uh, whereas with these uh, uh, proof of stake, uh, chain-based proof of stakes, it doesn't matter if you have a thousand participants or a million participants or a billion participants. You just choose a random one every time. You just wait for six confirmations, twelve confirmations, whatever number of uh, confirmations uh, you know you want to wait. It's like you know very proof of work inspired. You just take the numbers from proof of work. And, uh, you know, it kind of works. It's uh, a very low level of uh, load for um, anyone uh, running a node, which is nice. But then there is also this uh, newer school of uh, proof of stake, which is uh, more explicitly yeah, inspired by traditional consensus theory. And in this, I would uh, definitely include Tendermint. I would include, um, you know, Casper FFG and uh, what Ethereum is using. And... Uh, uh, Polkadot had their own Casper FFG inspired thing. I forget the uh, name. I think Grandpa was uh, one of them. I think that's them. what it was. Yeah. And yeah, so it's uh, basically the uh, idea behind this school is to kind of take these more uh, traditional BFT uh, ideas where you have uh, lots of validators or in, in the traditional algorithms, all the validators uh, signing off on things in parallel and uh, you get consensus on things uh, very quickly. And uh, these algorithms have very different properties from the yeah, older ones, right? As, or, or sorry, from the yeah, proof of work inspired ones, uh, because uh, these algorithms, they do have a higher load on the client, they, and the load increases the more nodes they're participating. So you need to have a limit on how many nodes can participate. And you, uh, but then the trade off is there's this concept of finality where once a yeah, block gets confirmed, it can't get unconfirmed. And finality happens quickly, uh, so uh, Tendermented uh, you know, basically gives finality in a single slot, like one block gets confirmed um, before you uh, start uh, making uh, the uh, next block. And 
it, it also has this interesting property of uh, asynchronous safety, which is like, even if the network screws up and like starts uh, being extremely unreliable and extremely delayed in uh, sending messages, even if that happens, like, okay, maybe the ability to create new blocks will be borked while the uh, network has problems, but old blocks are not going to be reverted, right? Whatever was finalized stays finalized. That's not how chain-based anything works, right? In chain-based anything, the uh, issue is that uh, like you don't have any level of uh, asynchronous safety. Like once the uh, network latency gets high enough, the all of the good guys are going to be you know not coordinating with each other and building off of totally different chains, and the bad guys just going to want to run node that's like centrally coordinated. And so someone with you know in the extreme case even like ten percent of the uh, total stake would be able to kind of outrun the, uh, you know, completely uncoordinated good guys that are off uh, building a bunch of different chains. In uh, the, uh, uh, this kind of newer style of proof of stake, that's not a problem, right? But on the other hand, one of the issue that the issues that the uh, newer types of proof of stake uh, sometimes have is that they have this property that you need two thirds to make any uh, to be online to make any progress at all. So if more than one third drop offline, the network just completely halts, right? And Ethereum's uh, proof of stake, the uh, Casper FFG, is interesting because uh, it intentionally tries to be a compromise between these two schools of thought, and uh, it tries to get the best of both worlds between them in a lot of ways, right? Uh, so it it is a traditional uh, BFT inspired. It has the concept of finality. Finality comes fairly quickly. Finality has asynchronous safety, but at the same time, it is kind of chain based. It doesn't give you finality in one slot. It gives you finality in sixty-four slots. It's uh, you know it does have some uh, limits on how many yeah, nodes there are. So there are many, many thousands of validators in the uh, Ethereum network, which is uh, way more than uh, is the case uh, for you know any of these uh, Tendermint-based uh, ones. But at the same time, you still need thirty-two ETH to be a validator, right? So it's like not a super high, uh, uh, super high inaccessible limit, but it's still a, or it's still a minimum that's pretty high. And um, so it's this like very big middle ground. It even has the property that if more than one third drop offline, the other validators can continue the chain and that it can kind of self-recover without manual intervention and even keep things going in the meantime. So it tries to get the uh, as much of the best of all worlds um, as it can um, in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's also, I think, uh, far from the uh, best that can be done. And uh, like after we uh, solidified on that algorithm, you know, we've identified both a bunch of issues with that algorithm itself and also um, opportunities for how to create something that's uh, improved and much better. And so I think, um, you know, even Ethereum's own proof of stake is going to keep uh, evolving uh, pretty significantly over the next uh, five years or so. So, you know, I hope that was a good summary. I hope that was uh, the, <laughs> yeah, the right level of uh, technicalness for uh, this. But, um, you know, if it was uh, too high, also happy to kind of re-explain uh, re some stuff in more detail, too. Episode well, done. Thanks. Yeah, for that's talk. the episode. Thanks for <laughs> <laughs> I have questions for days, so I'll let Jesse and D go. So I linked two documents earlier before the this podcast yesterday, and one of the documents was um, the write-up that uh, is entitled Paths Towards Single Slot Finality. So is that kind of what you're speaking to over the next five years? Ethereum is going to go through upgrades to kind of shift from 64 to, um, I guess, taking... So I guess, what what does that even look like? 
uh, shifting away from 64 slots to single slot finality? Sure. Uh, so the uh, goal of single slot finality is basically to make uh, Ethereum's uh, uh, proof of stake more tendermint like in the sense of like actually uh, finalizing one slot uh, right after that slot is finished and uh, before you, you even uh, start uh, working on the next slot. And so there's a, a bunch of uh, advantages to doing this. Um, I think uh, there's there are two kinds of uh, realizations that took us down this path, right? One realization is kind of this negative realization, which is that there have been a bunch of uh, bugs in the uh, existing Ethereum proof of stake that people uh, kept finding and that we kept patching them. But like over time, it became more and more philosophically clear that there's just this fundamental friction uh, between the uh, traditional BFT-inspired part of Ethereum's proof of stake, which is uh, the uh, Casper FFG, and uh, the uh, chain-based uh, uh, proof of stake-inspired uh, part of Ethereum's uh, proof of stake, which is uh, the uh, LMD Ghost, the uh, fork choice, um, and. Uh, those two don't actually play yeah, very nicely with each other, and uh, you have to do a lot of uh, like fairly complicated juggling to make sure that they actually agree with each other and deal with the cases where they don't agree. And so the negative realization is like, wow, actually making this uh, a combined version that works in this way is like actually very hard to get right, and maybe we don't want to do that. And then the positive realization is uh, basically that... Uh, Originally, the reason why we went with uh, 64 slots instead of one slot is uh, because we uh, thought that, you know, there's no chance in hell that it's actually possible to process over 100,000 uh, signatures from a bunch of uh, validators in parallel. But the thing that we've realized over the last year or so is that, wait, actually we can, right? Um, which is, uh, I think, really uh, a fascinating fact because... Uh, like from Tendermint land, for example, I think people are used to this idea that like, oh, you know, it's kind of, you know, O of N squared uh, is uh, kind of the way that uh, they uh, uh, talk about it. And uh, that, uh, you know, every node has to get messages from every other node. And so you can only really yeah, process uh, signatures from like a couple of hundred uh, nodes at most. And uh, here we're talking about like, hey, you know, can, can we have hundreds of thousands of validators and still have them all run in parallel? And uh, there have been the big technology that really unlocks this is uh, BLS aggregation. And uh, I mean, I'll have to really credit Justin Drake, uh, one of the uh, you know, amazing Ethereum Foundation researchers, for um, really identifying BLS aggregation as this uh, technology that enables this uh, very fast uh, signature uh, verification um, and especially verification of lots of signatures and uh, really pushing hard for it to get adopted and uh, also pushing hard on the uh, cryptography and the software ecosystem to like really uh, optimize the hell out of it. Um, so just to give a uh, brief kind of overview of uh, what this is, right? So uh, BLS, um, this is uh, a yeah, signature scheme that uh, uses uh, elliptic curve pairings, right? So it's this uh, more complicated elliptic curve technology that was uh, invented, I guess, uh, in a very theoretical way in the uh, late 80s to early 90s. Um, actually, uh, interestingly enough, um, at the beginning, elliptic curve pairings were invented as a way of breaking elliptic curve cryptography, right? So uh, once uh, 
elliptic curve uh, pairings came out, it became obvious that like, wait, there are certain kinds of elliptic curves that are not secure. And uh, the we have to make sure that the uh, elliptic curves uh, that we use are not those kinds of curves. But then later on, it was realized that like, wait, you know, this uh, ability to basically uh, kind of multiply two elliptic curve points by each other, right? And to have this kind of multiplication that, you know, follows uh, standard things like, um, you know, the distributive property and uh, like standard uh, laws of, uh, you know, mathematics uh, is actually this uh, very powerful thing that unlocks a lot of uh, algorithms that would not be possible with uh, basic elliptic curves, right? And uh, the really powerful thing about uh, BLS uh, aggregate signatures is that to sign a message, you basically, you're just multiplying your, uh, you're multiplying the hash of the message by your private key. And then to verify a message, you're multiplying the hash of the message by the public key, right? Here in this case, when I say multiply, like I basically mean uh, and make an elliptic curve pairing. And uh, because there's like, it's a very kind of, simple algorithm if you just describe it algebraically and so you could do really cool stuff like if you have 10 signatures of the same message from 10 different people you can combine all the signatures into one how do you do it you just add all the signatures and then if you want to verify that how do you verify it well you just add all the public keys right and it turns out that just this operation of adding public keys is incredibly cheap right and an elliptic curve addition is uh like one over 400 of an elliptic curve uh, multiplication because an elliptic curve multiplication contains about 400 additions. And it's so it's a very fast operation. Um, the fact that you can add the signatures together means that it's a very light on data. Like an Ethereum block that has signatures from a whole bunch of stakers, it has only one signature that's uh, 48 bytes plus a bit. Uh, or sorry, 96 bytes, plus a bit field, which is one bit per participant of who participated, and then that's it, right? And so you gain these huge efficiencies um, where the extra cost, both in terms of computation and in terms of data per participant is like actually incredibly tiny. And that's, uh, you know, it's very powerful. It's uh, basically yeah, means that instead of being stuck at just uh, processing a few hundred uh, these uh, messages in parallel, like, you know, you actually can process tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands in a uh, remarkably short period of time, right? So we um, basically just sat down, we did the math, we realized that like, wait, you can actually do this. And uh, the main challenge is uh, this engineering effort of like actually getting um, you know, 100,000 signatures from 100,000 different people and like actually uh, being able to aggregate them all into one. And just like the procedure of uh, gathering all of these signatures from the yeah, network and uh, gathering them together. Um, so that's an engineering problem. And so there's this realization that if we can solve the engineering problem, then like we actually can have nodes that verify a huge number of signatures. And, uh, you know, that's where single SWOT finality uh, look, uh, can uh, start to become possible, right? So because of this uh, combination of, um, you know, the negative realization that the status quo just like has these, uh, um, you know, misalignments in the uh, intersection between the uh, chain-based style and the uh, uh, Casper or the traditional BFT inspired style where the Ethereum uses both of them and this positive realization that like, wait, the uh, overhead of uh, actually doing a uh, traditional consensus on a, a huge number of nodes is like actually a solvable problem. Those two together motivate the facts that uh, like, wait, actually, yeah, moving to something single SWOT finality, something tendermint like 
uh, for Ethereum consensus is um, actually possible. Now, we're not going to be yeah, copying Tendermint exactly. And I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Like one is that Tendermint is not at least currently optimized around this kind of BLS based support a huge number of uh, users uh, sort of use case. And the other one is that one thing that I think we in Ethereum really value that like the, the Tendermint uh, types tends to not value as much as we really value just the ability to have liveness, right? So Tendermint by itself um, has this property that if more than one third go offline, then the thing just stops and it just stops until you recover, right? Um, and Ethereum school of thought is like, no, like it's uh, not acceptable for an open public uh, network um, that's uh, intended to be able to survive, um, you know, all kinds of extreme situations to just stop. Um, and, you know, it has to make a best effort at, at, at keeping going. And, uh, you know, if there are applications that cannot handle um, things reverting, then it should be the application's choice to decide whether or not to, to uh, care about these uh, blocks that temporarily have a, a lower level of security, right? So the Ethereum chain just... Uh, should make a best effort at continuing and adding blocks as well as it can and uh, being honest about like what level of security those blocks actually provide. And then like it's up to users, it's up to applications to decide like, am I going to follow the tip of the chain or am I going to follow only the uh, kind of secure, very secure finalized portion of the chain and accept that like I might uh, end up having more uh, more outages, um, you know, if lots of people go offline, if that happens, right? Uh, so. The question of like, how do we take Tenderbit style consensus and still integrate this uh, feature of uh, being able to continue the chain if uh, more than one third go offline and like combining those two together and then uh, combining them that together with this concept of an activity leak where if more than one third go offline, then the uh, ones that are offline get their balances leaked until uh, we're back, basically until we're back up to two thirds uh, being online and the chain can continue. And just like taking all of these kind of Ethereum values uh, considerations and uh, integrating them with a, uh, a sort of tenement like approach to a uh, consensus, like that's the, the academic challenge of uh, figuring a single swag finality out. In addition to like, you know, the engineering problem of making it actually possible to have 100,000 signatures. But like, these are the hard problems that the uh, Ethereum proof of stake research uh, community is thinking about. Awesome. That was a great answer. Appreciate it. So I, um, I learned a lot playing video games as I grew up. And uh, one of the things I learned is like, once you level up, you got to try even harder to level up again. Right. So Ethereum just, uh, you know, it's many would consider it a level up, but you said that you see rapid evolution even happening in the next five years. So what do you think that first step in that evolution is? Mm. So Ethereum in general, right, has this uh, very uh, you know, deep uh, roadmap, even after the merge that I've talked publicly about in a bunch of places, right? And we know we've talked about the surge, the verge, the purge, the splurge, and the... Uh, you know, introducing like that was know, sharding. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. Yep, 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 I saw that a picture there, and I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah." Are we really named yeah. that? Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no that's it. You know, but, uh, like the, those old points to you know actual EIPs that people are working on, right? And so there is like a bunch of stuff that people wants to do in all kinds of space uh, spaces. So uh, proto dank sharding, this kind of first step of full dank sharding, which adds uh, you know this uh, large amount of data and data availability sampling, like that, that for 
to add more scaling for rollups. That's like the big first step for, um, I think, what Ethereum is going to focus on after the merge. But then at the same time, like we want to do all of these tracks in parallel because there's no reason not to do them in parallel. Um, for improving the uh, Ethereum proof of stake uh, consensus, um, I think uh, the short-term things are, I mean, one of them is um, obviously just enabling withdrawals. That's like the last very simple and dumb thing that's uh, not yet enabled uh, because we just wanted to get the merge out as fast as possible, but it's going to be enabled soon. Um, and then the yeah, uh, other things are, there's uh, a short-term bucket where the short-term bucket is basically, yeah, can we do a couple of fixes to make uh, proof of stake cleaner and uh, more reliably secure in the short term? And then there are the longer term fixes, which is like, how do we actually get to single slot finality utopia, right? And the two do uh, kind of uh, play nicely with each other uh, because uh, a lot of the same ideas are going to be needed for both. So one example of a short-term improvement is uh, there's this concept called a view merge, which uh, fixes a lot of the uh, issues in Ethereum and uh, really uh, increases the uh, safety thresholds that we have right now. Um, basically, the idea behind view merge is uh, if the proposer includes a full view of attestations that they've seen and um, clients like other nodes in the network they yeah, accept attestations if either those attestations came on time in the previous slot or if those attestations are part of the proposer's view. And uh, the yeah, a goal of this mechanism is basically that a an honest proposer, a single honest proposer, would be able to like basically synchronize everyone's views, right? Uh, because uh, if network latency is low enough, then uh, you know either an attestation uh, came early enough that everyone just saw it or an attestation came late enough that no one saw it, or if an attestation came in the middle, so some people saw it and some didn't, then the proposer will have seen it and the proposer will have uh, put it into uh, their own block and uh, that'll ensure that everyone accepts it, right? So the proposer basically kind of like, you know, forces a, a split where for either everyone has seen some attestation or no one has seen some uh, attestation. Um, so that uh, basically, yeah, makes it much harder to do a lot of like consensus preventing attacks and uh, well, what are called balance attacks and just uh, you know all kinds of uh, nasty things and it it does that more effectively than uh, some of the uh, previous techniques like you know it's called proposer boost that uh, we uh, came up with before so that's like a short term thing that'll improve ethereum's consensus it'll make it more secure the good news is it doesn't even require a hard fork so it can just be like implemented whenever um so that's short term. And then the long term is uh, how do we actually get to like full single slot finality? And uh, I think that still requires research to figure out the exact algorithm that still requires research to figure out the aggregation strategy. So there's like a bunch of strands of research that will have to continue happening over the next year. And then at some point, things will switch over to, uh, you know, EIP writing and uh, implementation. And uh, I think uh, another uh, thing that will happen there is that... Uh, We'll probably take that opportunity to take some of the things that we've learned about proof of stake economics uh, and uh, make a couple of tweaks there, right? Like make, make it easier for validators to deposit and withdraw, maybe even add a functionality for validators to change their keys without withdrawing. Um, maybe, yeah, you know, people have even thrown around ideas like adding native delegation. Um, so 
and just um, you know all kinds of uh, different things that like we didn't have time to add it to 1.0 but that uh, people have uh, realized over time or might be yeah good and uh, important uh, to uh, prevent things like um, you know in, uh, reduce the incentive to join the largest stake pool uh, so that's uh, that's the sort of stuff that uh, people are working on in the longer term and then in the short term it's like simultaneously shipping these early yeah, stage uh, fixes and uh, starting to lay the groundwork for the yeah, deeper and longer term stuff. Thank you. Nice. I often, um, I often like try to, when I'm explaining the merge to people, especially people who have like, aren't following the ecosystem a lot, I basically tell them it's, it's, it's similar to uh, rebuilding a plane while it's in flight. And mm -hmm. like the, the, the monumental effort that went into doing something so difficult, both from a research and engineering perspective is, is, is monumental, like for lack of a better word. Uh, like, is that the same type of difficulty required in changing proof of stake protocols to like additional proof of stake protocols? Like that type of drastic mm -hmm. change um, is was is that is that indicative of just a proof of work move, or or do you think that you can continuously upgrade a, a protocol? more simply because it's going from proof of stake to proof of stake and is that yeah i expect it would be simpler yeah and mm -hmm. i think that may be dependent upon like arguably based on what you just said this was enabled mm -hmm. by some some interesting and novel cryptography that allowed you to get this thing done and in the advent of additional novel cryptography as we keep pushing that boundary like do you see similar size changes and will those changes be as hard to, to implement I definitely expect things will be uh, simpler from here. Like the merge will probably end up being the uh, most um, complex uh, kind of architecturally complex thing that the ecosystem has done. I mean, I think uh, there is going to be a switch to uh, ZK snarking everything that's going to happen somehow over the next five to 10 years. And uh, ZK snarks are like, you know, devilishly complex uh, technology in uh, a lot of ways. And just in terms of the complexity of the math, they're definitely a step above. Um, mm -hmm. you know, anything that's uh, being done in uh, protocols that don't use uh, ZK snarks. Uh, so that'll be complex in a different way. But in terms of the like DevOps complexity of uh, implementing a change and uh, coordinating it across a highly distributed ecosystem, I feel like things are only getting easier from here. And I think uh, the, I mean, one big reason for that is definitely that like proof of stake to proof of stake is uh, easier than uh, proof of work to proof of stake um, because... Uh, you know, proof of work has like first of all, we're in the proof of work to proof of stake change. We're basically talking about switching over from one client running the uh, consensus to a different client running the consensus, and um, the whole architecture of like you know you still have Geth and Geth is still processing Ethereum blocks, but this is uh, going inside now uh, being wrapped in a consensus clients and you know things like Lighthouse and Nimbus and Prism and uh, tech the um, challenge of like getting these clients talk talking to each other having these kind of n squared possible pairings of uh, different clients to different other clients and uh, like figuring out uh, all of that stuff um, so there's a lot of complexities there um, and uh, I also think that uh, changing the uh, finality gadget on an existing proof of stake chain is just like fundamentally easier in some ways because uh, you know you can just temporarily turn the finality gadget off for some amount of time right like uh, you can uh, think about it like there's ways to 
architect the uh, transition that just uh, become a lot simpler. And also a lot of the technology is shared uh, for sake of a lot finality, like we would not need any new fundamental technology, right? Like the only uh, technology that uh, we would really need is uh, just the uh, engineering uh, complexity of uh, figuring out how to safely do this uh, really large scale um, aggregation. Um, so uh, it'll be simpler. It'll be uh, also possible to do it more step by step. Um, so, um, you know, you might even imagine like uh, the first step being reducing the uh, number of uh, slots in an epoch and changing um, other things to be the same. And then, you, and then you make some more changes and then you make some more changes and then three hard forks later, it uh, is what we wanted it to be at the beginning. Um, so there's the incremental route, there's the extreme route, there's, uh, you know, different uh, options for uh, ways of uh, how to do it. Um, so yeah i think in in general it is uh definitely uh, a uh, it's considerably simpler to um just uh, uh tweak the uh, proof of stake than it is to like move uh, off of proof of work uh, entirely onto a proof of stake for the first time you mentioned uh moving from proof of work to proof of stake was um complex uh, i'd like to talk a little bit about um, proof of stake in and of itself and ask you if what what are your thoughts about its existence in the ecosystem? Is it something that everybody's going to kind of um, still use or uh, are is it going to, I guess, in some ways go extinct and kind of everybody's going to iterate on different proof of stake uh, consensus algorithms? You mean proof of work going extinct? Proof of proof of work, my bad. You yeah. said proof of stake for all of them. <laughs> That would be a brain and fart. I think uh, there is enough of a sub-constituency in uh, crypto that uh, deeply believes in the uh, arguments for uh, proof of work, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, metaphysical arguments or kind of like practical beliefs about what's uh, about what's uh, more likely to become centralized or whatever else um, that uh, Proof of work chains are going to continue existing for you know quite some time, um, you know even if uh, I personally don't really believe in the concept anymore, right? And like, and I I think uh, it's uh, even more uh, uh, true with now that uh, you know we've had this uh, long period of time where people who do believe in uh, proof of stake, I think uh, a lot of them have just kind of moved over to the proof of stake uh, focused uh, communities, and um, so. I think I definitely am expecting that almost ever, almost all new chains that are uh, going to be created going forward are going to be proof of uh, stake chains, and uh, that's true both because I think in general um, the uh, uh, kind of broader community vibe is uh, at this point uh, strongly more in favor of proof of stake than uh, proof of work, but also because uh, proof of work has this property that even proof of work proponents will admit, uh, which is uh, that like only the strongest uh, proof of work uh, coin in a particular algorithm category can be secure, right? Because uh, if you're not the strongest, then the miners from the strongest can just swoop in at any time and, uh, you know, wreck your chain and then go back to their chain. Um, so that's uh, like in the case, no, this is like a per class thing, right? So there's uh, the main classes are like sh basically SHA-256, ASICs and uh, GPUs. And then there's a couple of other classes of ASICs, like I think, uh, Equihash might be starting to get ASIC. To, Maybe uh, storage-based. Like you can see something like storage-based proof of work. I see any, yeah. any external resource. 
right, being right. committed to a chain. Yeah, so like those can get in. Like I think all of them are going to get ASIC eventually, but the point is that they're like different classes of ASICs, and so one class can't sort of swoop in and uh, conquer the other for like six hours and then go back. Um, but uh, like within. Well, what that still means is that bootstrapping a, a new safe proof of work system is incredibly hard, and that's in vastly harder than uh, bootstrapping a new safe uh, proof of stake system, right? So, uh, I expect all base, almost all new chains to be proof of stake, and uh, the existing ones. Um, you know, I think the Zcash and Dogecoin communities have both expressed interest in switching over, and uh, now there is a clear a viable path for how to switch over um that's been i think both legitimized and the technically proven to be possible so i uh, expect that um, you know they'll start uh doing that over time and then um you know bitcoin and the bitcoin derivatives are and uh, the yeah kind of you know the the various sort of like alternate chains that uh, consider themselves to be the uh, the real bitcoin i think um, mm -hmm. almost all of those are going to uh, stay proof of work i mean it's possible that like in some future bitcoin some bitcoin cash uh, moves to a proof of stake out of necessity because it just realizes that it's not secure because it can't dominate some category but make discussions or toy with the idea of moving to like an avalanche or avalanche subnet they've right, at least implemented yeah. like an overlay network for zero confirmations using avalanche right right but i think uh, like doing an overlay network is one thing but like actually uh, taking the core consensus mm -hmm. and uh, like yeah moving the root over that's uh different um and then i think uh you know bitcoin itself i uh, definitely don't expect to move over i mean i think uh, if there's like some extreme scenario of necessity like for example uh transaction fees go down and uh, you know 50 years from now rewards basically don't exist and uh, the bitcoin chain just like looks very vulnerable and there's even lots of spare hardware that could be used to attack it then uh, at most, I could see a move to hybrid proof of stake happening, and I could see that being a politically easier sell than adding it, uh, adding permanent issuance. Um, but like barring that, I don't really see anything happening. And if you look at what I mean, if I, if I were to try to take an example, because most of what the I guess topological move in Bitcoin is with expanding and and having sub networks or side chains or whatever that root themselves inside the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, if you want to try and take that akin to the Avalanche ecosystem and a, and a subnet moving off the C chain into its own thing, if you have a, a fee market that is supposed to sustain the ecosystem in some way, and you take a good portion of that fee market off to a different chain, um, then you remove those incentives to keep the chain safe. Especially when a proof of work scenario, I feel like like you're gonna come to a scenario where like they want everything on chain, but not because you have to keep that fee market live. And it seems like this awkward balancing act, and and that seems to be also the the direction that the Bitcoin ecosystem would like to go is just maintain a bunch of side chains that root themselves in Bitcoin that keep that mm -hmm. fee market alive in some way, shape, or form. And, and in some ways, that's also the the the, the model for Ethereum with like the main chain serving a bunch of rollups. Is mm -hmm. that, can you, can you see a parallel there? There's definitely a parallel. I mean, like I personally am obviously, yeah, I mean, I'm much more bullish on the Ethereum version of that than the Bitcoin version because the, <laughs> uh, like the Bitcoin version is like fundamentally trusted, right? Like, uh, you know, they, uh, they, like they yeah, love talking about, you know, rooting things in Bitcoin, but the reality is that that rooting is like, okay, you publish hashes, like you basically just have a separate chain that has its own separate 51% assumptions. Um, mm -hmm. But uh 
like in in terms of the uh, practical economics of it, I mean, I think uh, it's definitely a concern if uh, everyone starts uh, using um, you know ultra low fee layer twos, and uh, that ends up uh, not uh, turning into uh, you know fees that go into layer one and uh, supporting uh, layer one. I do think that there is an important difference here between like roll-up style layer twos and uh, you know like validium style things, for example, right? Because like if you have something that just publishes a hash on chain, no matter how much usage it has, then the fees that it's going to contribute are pretty negligible. But if you have a roll-up that actually puts data on the uh, L1, then that's still some level of fees that the L1 is collecting. And then the hope is that like okay, fine, roll-ups are going to make things a hundred times cheaper, uh, but uh, there, that's going to bring in a hundred times more usage, and so the chain is still going to be yeah, secure enough uh, because it'll still collect enough fees as a result, right? So, it's definitely possible to have a layer two centric ecosystem that uh, collects enough fees to pay for security. Um, but I definitely don't think that that's something that you can just uh, count on having by default, especially if the style of layer twos that you're encouraging is a style of layer twos that's like inherently like as uh, distant and uh, decoupled from the layer one as possible. Uh, so one of the trade-offs of of moving to proof of stake is this concept of a long, a long range attack in that it's very difficult to trust a certain amount of data that's uh, past a certain age. How do you how do you deal with that? Like, how, is that something that you can fix later on down the line or is it just not something we should actually really care about mm. so the uh, trade-off uh, there right is uh, what's called the weak subjectivity period uh, basically there is a period where a, a client has to log on at least once uh, that period uh, that period in order to get a uh, kind of full strength uh, guarantee uh, that the uh, chain that it's uh, getting is uh, correct and if it logs on less often than that then there's like in principle, inability to execute a double spend that would affect uh, that particular client uh, without uh, requiring anyone to get slashed, right? And the uh, uh, it's a tunable parameter. Uh, so the it, you could set the weak subjectivity period to be 10 years, but if you set it to be 10 years, then the flip side is that you have to have a 10-year withdrawal window. Or at least you have to have a queue mechanism where if everyone tries to withdraw at the same time, it'll take 10 years for more than a third of validators to withdraw, right? Um, but on the other hand, if you want everyone to be able to withdraw immediately, then um, you know you can set the uh, weak uh, subjectivity period to be you know, like half a day. Um, and then the yeah, challenge is like, well, the uh, you're only providing security guarantees to clients that are actually online all the time. And so... If you, uh, you know, ever uh, turn off your computer for a yeah, significant amount of time and forget to turn it back on, you would basically have to like ask a friend to confirm whether or not the yeah, chain is secure. Uh, so, like the, when when the yeah, weak subjectivity period starts being tuned closer and closer to zero, then that starts moving uh, closer to like a yeah a, a, an early uh, ripple uh, style of consensus where it's more about like every user trusting their uh, social network and then uh, kind of hoping that that converges. Except I think like the the ripple style consensus by itself, like it uh, is like it is pretty unstable and it does require, you know, end up requiring quite a bit of centralization to be stable. But here it's like ripple style assisted uh, proof of stake consensus. Um, so it turns into a yeah, very different uh, style of trust assumption. Um, but, uh, you know, you could do it and then uh, you, you, you know, it does become very easy to withdraw and like staking becomes very convenient. 
or you can take a trade-off that's uh, somewhere in the middle of the two, right? So in the case of Ethereum, for example, the yeah, weak subjectivity period, it depends on a lot of factors. Like it depends on uh, you know, what level of uh, economic security you're willing to tolerate. It depends on uh, how many validators are validating it, you know, just a lot of different factors, but it's like around a month maybe. And uh, at the, so the trade-off there is that if everyone tried to withdraw at the same time, then it would take months for uh, a lot of the validators to withdraw. But if almost uh, nobody is trying to withdraw, then you can withdraw instantly, right? So like this mechanism of uh, using a queue instead of uh, using a, uh, uh, let's say, uh, instead of just uh, using a delay, like that's this uh, really powerful thing, right? Uh, so that's um, about the trade-off. Um, I don't think that you can get rid of the trade-off completely. I do think that there are ways to optimize on uh, that trade-off and there are ways to kind of get better results, possibly even better results than we're getting now. But it's like a tweak around the edges thing rather than a, yeah, oh, we can make this problem go away completely, that sort of situation. Mm -hmm. When you have these different consensus mechanisms and like we have these different layers, layer one, layer two, I hear, I see now people are creeping up on layer three and I'm like, damn, I feel like I'm still on layer zero, but that that's neither here nor said, uh, what do they all have to have the same consensus mechanism? And if not, then what is the, what are the trade-offs and what are like the security? I don't know. I don't want to say flaws, but like where are the mm. holes in the net, you know? Yeah, well, no, no. Layer zero is the most important layer, right? No, layer zero is the community. It's, uh, without that, there. nothing else. Can, no, yeah, why. yeah, no. Without that layer, <laughs> nothing else can exist. Um, so actually, yeah, layer one is the only layer that really needs to be fancy, right? The yeah, all the layers above layer one, they can actually use extremely simple consensus algorithms. The reason basically is that the hardest part of uh, what makes a consensus algorithm complex is the need to be able to recover from like a certain very limited number of edge cases, right? So like the reason why you can't have a really easy consensus algorithm that just says, I propose a block, two thirds of people agree on a block and that block is finalized, is that uh, someone malicious could propose a block right on the boundary where half of the validators propose one thing and then half of the validators uh, propose uh, some message saying that the block is not there or you know the next person's block or whatever the rules told them to propose and then you need some way of recovering from that and you want your way of recovering from that to uh, kind of not interfere with the security of the uh, of the decision that would happen if there was instead of two-thirds uh, uh, one-third split um, and so you start getting down this kind of rabbit hole and you end up needing things as complex as uh, you know tendermint or ffg to kind of completely resolve that issue right for higher layers you can um you can always have a much simpler uh mechanism to uh deal with exceptional situations which is you just appeal to the to the layer below right so you can have a consensus mechanism for layer two that just says oh a block is only valid is valid as soon as two-thirds of people agree to it and if you ever get a weird situation where like you know you have some 50 50 deadlock thing then you can resolve it by basically having a rule that says whoever publishes the chain first wins, right? Uh, so you can, if you rely on the chain as a tiebreaker, everything becomes easy. You can even have layer twos that don't have a consensus algorithm because the way that they work is that they uh, rely on just uh, directly submitting a batch to the uh, layer below, right? So 
when you're a higher layer, there's uh, lots of uh, very easy and clean things that you can do that are not accessible to a uh, layer one, right? Like there's this uh, big uh, fundamental difference between how do you build a thing where you do have a uh, some other layer that you can appeal to in extreme situations versus like how do you design the last layer that everyone is appealing to? And, uh, you know, it's that harder problem that's uh, kind of already uh, well on the way to being solved. And so uh, the uh, problem of... Uh, making the uh, higher layers is actually much easier in a lot of ways. Based on what you just said, that like the, that lower layer is on its way to being solved. Do you feel as though from here that we're going to coalesce around the proper way to do proof of stake and build these layer ones? Or will it be, will, will there be like significant innovation and in an alternative method and have competing layer ones that actually stick around? I think the uh, kinds of uh, innovations uh, that we're likely to see over the next decade are um, one is uh, different ways of integrating zero knowledge proofs, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if there is one thing that's even more powerful than uh, BLS aggregation in the long run, it's going to be recursive snarks. The uh, reason uh, basically is that right, recursive snarks, they can do the same thing that aggregation does. They can uh, take a whole bunch of signatures and they can aggregate them into one thing. But uh, the really powerful uh, thing there is uh, that the uh, verification process can be even cheaper, right? Like you don't even need to, um, you know, verify the, uh, you know, do 100,000 elliptic curve additions to get the uh, verification, uh, like public key. Uh, you can uh, like just have a snark that says, here's the public key. And, um, you know, I, I'm uh, assuring you that it's correct. And then here are the deltas to the balances and I'm assuring you that they're correct, right? So you can get these even more powerful uh, benefits, but uh, it'll take a lot of technology to get there. And once something like that becomes possible, then I think things are going to shift even further in the uh, direction of single slot finality, right? Because uh, once you can do aggregation with recursive snarks, then uh, you know the only limit is basically the size of the bit field that you can handle, right? And potentially even there, there might be like clever tricks that have to do with uh, you know random selection that might be able to like fix uh, some things and uh, but you know it maybe maybe there are maybe there's not right but the but you you get closer to some kind of maximum where like you actually can support a really large number of validators like just going by bit field length if you're willing to accept a one megabyte bit field in a block that you can accept uh, eight million validators right at and, the next uh, block you know, size debate. <laughs> the size of the field. Absolutely. And then, uh, you know, if you have a block every 12 seconds and you're willing to accept, uh, you know, a, gigab a gigabyte per second, if you want to be extreme, then like literally every human being on earth can be an independent validator, right? So if you combine just like a little bit more of Moore's law with uh, zero knowledge proofs over the next few decades, then uh, like you can basically take the single slot thing and uh, really push it to some uh, pretty amazing extremes. Um, and that's going to require like reworking a lot of technology and uh, there's going to be a lot of work uh, in figuring out like, you know, what is the strategy at actually generating these recursive proofs? So I definitely see a lot of that kind of innovation happening. But then I also think there are going to be a lot of people whose school of thought basically is like, you know, no, we don't need any of that fancy stuff. We only need like maybe a thousand formalized in protocol validators because uh, everyone else can just uh, use delegation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I expect, um, you know, both of those uh, will uh, exist. And uh, among people who are fine with like a small number of on-chain pools and uh, relying on delegation, like it's, uh, you end up pretty quickly converging to a, a, a one design 
and then you can zk start that design and like you can basically take uh you know stuff that i'm sure people like mina and uh you know some of those fancy chains are working on and uh, at some point you have something that's uh, pretty close to a solved problem and then in among people who want there to be more validators like it'll take more work but i uh, yeah i do expect that there will be a uh, convergence uh, though uh, you know it might take some uh, longer amount of time to get there um the person who might probably uh, uh, disagree with me the most a bit here is uh, Vlad uh, Zamfir, um, because uh, like one of the things that Vlad's really into is this idea of making more sophisticated consensus algorithms in order th where the consensus algorithm itself is inherently sharded um, in order to like uh, serve and provide really yeah, strong consensus guarantees to sharded chains better. And like my school of thought is that we should try to compartmentalize and uh, treat sharding and consensus as two completely separate problems. But like his school of thought is much more trying to integrate the two and like trying to eke out all of the yeah, efficiency and guarantees that you can get out of that, right? Um, so I expect we will keep seeing people innovate around the edges like that. And I expect them, you know, there will be a yeah, growing school of thought that says like, hey, you know, this thing is simple and uh, this thing has been battle tested and like just use this. And people like keep on, kind of innovating on the frontier and that'll probably be yeah the way that uh, things uh, stay for uh, quite some time but uh, i do like my personal prediction is that ethereum itself is definitely going to gravitate towards stabilizing on something a uh, standard over the next decade okay great um in the process of listening to that i think i lost my last question so uh i it'll come to me as i'm asking this next one how about how much of this content is covered by your new book uh, so the book is like basically a yeah, collection of uh, blog posts on all kinds of topics uh, that I've written over the last uh, eight years, right? So this uh, includes a lot of stuff on cryptography. It includes stuff on economics. It includes stuff on the yeah, a kind of political philosophy side of blockchains. It's just a you know, really yeah, big um, and uh, broad uh, sort of uh, thing. It, the like the next 10 years of frontier cryptography is uh, definitely less a topic of that. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you want the next 10 years of frontier cryptography, it's just a, a combination of like blog posts and hack up D documents by, um, you know, both myself <laughs> and the uh, Ethereum uh, uh, research team and uh, some of the other uh, research teams that are um, you know, doing amazing work in this space. That last question before for wrapping it up is, is like I, this one concept of blockchains has always been fascinating to me. And over the course of me learning about Bitcoin and one CPU, one vote, and you know everyone running Bitcoin on their laptops. Um, with that concept moving to what it is today in that you need some relatively high technical skills to run a validator. Uh, you need some reasonable uptime uh, to, to run that validator and like the resources required to participate in the validation process or mining process are significantly higher than this concept of one CPU, one vote. I run it on my laptop mm -hmm. or my mobile phone. Uh, mm -hmm. Do we get back there? Like in the process of adding these uh, additional efficiencies and innovations and, and mm -hmm. better technology to distributed mm -hmm. consensus and blockchain networks, do we get back to where everyone kind of participates and we have a reasonable level of churn based on commodity devices and everyday activity? Mm -hmm. I definitely really hope so. Um, so uh, a lot of the uh, 
improvements that we're trying to push into Ethereum, um, I think have to do with uh, making being a validator easier. Um, so uh, the Verge, right, uh, the uh, introduction of Oracle Trees, that allows validators to be what's called stateless clients. Uh, so they don't need to have a significant amount of hard drive space. They can just like verify blocks with proofs as they come. And then if you take that and then you also, um, you know, fast forward another couple of years in the future and you add ZK EVMs on top, then uh, verifying a block will just be, uh, you know, downloading a pile of data and uh, verifying one snark and uh, that's it, right? And I think uh, that's the dream, right? Like the dream is that 10 years from now, running a, a, a validator will basically just be, uh, you know, you download a block, you uh, run... Uh, some sim like some arithmetic hashing algorithm over it. You compute something, and then you ver and then you take us you verify a snark, and you do this like one computation, and then you know the block is uh, valid, and uh, then you uh, go on the you know you publish uh, your signature off to the network, and you do a couple of peer-to-peer uh, -peer tasks in the background, and that's it, right? So. The dream is definitely, yeah, I think, absolutely to get back to this uh, vision where validating is this uh, incredibly, yeah, highly accessible task. Um, I do think that people overstate the extents to which we're far away from that vision today, right? Like people have this attitude that, like, oh, if you want to stake, you need to have uptime. But the reality is that you can be profitable as a staker as long as you have more than fifty percent uptime, right? Like. If you as a staker are online literally yeah, 60% of the time, like if literally, yeah, you know, you uh, go offline every time you as a human being go to sleep, you're still not profitable. And I, I, I don't think people have really quite internalized that yet. Like, you know, we still have people who kind of freak out if, uh, you know, oh no, I can't uh, go travel to a different city because one of my nodes shuts down in the middle. It's like, no, dude, like, you know, just like, don't worry. And, we interviewed, uh, <laughs> we interviewed David Theodore, and he just runs around in his in his in his uh, camp, his airstream all over the all over the country, running validators. So mm -hmm. if he can do it, I think a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and think, uh, you know, and then we're gonna start having things like uh, you know distributed validators uh, start uh, start to become uh, available soon. So I think uh, things are gonna improve there. I'm hoping that we can uh, find a way to kind of make uh, uh, inroads against the 32 ETH limit and or the 32th minimum and like find ways to decrease that eventually. Um, so uh, definitely uh, hopeful for the yeah, long term of that. I mean, I think uh, proof of stake is like significantly more accessible than uh, proof of work uh, even today, right? Like if you just look at a picture of a mining rig versus a yeah, staking rig, like it's just, um, you know, obvious which one is uh, simpler from an IT perspective. And uh, I, I do expect that to improve over time. Like I definitely, and then 10 years from now, like I definitely hope that, uh, you know, just uh, like an old phone that you have is something that would just be usable as a uh, full-time uh, stake, uh, staking device. Um, but, uh, you know, it is still going to take a lot of ingenuity to get there. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, for those that are curious, how do people reach out, learn about, go get your book to learn more, uh, get involved? Sure. Um, so for the uh, book, I uh, I tweeted out a uh, link to it on uh, my uh, Twitter a couple of uh, days ago. There it is. It's uh, proofofstake.gitcoin.co uh, slash order. Um, so uh, that's uh, the URL. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you can uh, find Yeah, I'm sure you can find it on your uh, favorite search engine. Um, but uh the, and then, you know, if you want to get involved in like Ethereum academic issues, there's uh, ETH Research is a great place. Um, the the uh, Ethereum specs on GitHub are like a more applied place. 
and then uh, you know there's the the web of like hackmd documents that points to each other like you know you just like get into one and uh, i do try to kind of intentionally look to all the other all the other documents i can find inside of each one of them thank you for coming on yeah no thank you too you can find links to ethereum and vitalik buterin's book in the show notes yeah we got on the weeds a little bit <laughs>